Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. From Scotland Yard, two stories from the files of the London Police. Here is your narrator, Clive Brooks. How do you do? This is Clive Brooks. The secret of Scotland Yard that I'm going to tell you today is a closely guarded one. But I'd rather you didn't spread it around if you don't mind. It seems that towards the end of the last century, the Yard had on its payroll an inspector called Duskovich, whose devotion to his bank account exceeded his devotion to duty. Let's talk about a thing. Let me put to you a problem. How does a Paris waiter rise to the title of Count? The rank of a barrister at law and the possession of 30,000 pounds. All this was done by the man whose casebook history I'm going to tell you today. His name was Ari Farrow, a waiter with ambition. Not the usual waiter's ambition, the setting up of his own cafe. As he served the customers, Ari's dreams soared far beyond the kitchens and the neat rows of tables. Nature had bestowed on him certain gifts. He was handsome, ingratiating, true. He had a command of languages and, ah, a wonderful way with women. He used his talents to the full, and he had luck on his side as well. For instance, he was questioned by Inspector Draskovich. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be talking about him. To achieve his ambitions, Ari used two methods, both requiring considerable courage. Our story opens in the summer of 1867 in that most glamorous of European capitals, France. At a corner table in one of the boulevard cafes, there sits an Englishman with a purpose. His name is William Cup, and his purpose. Ah, we are just about to discover. Oh, Garton! Garton! Come in, monsieur! At your service, sir. Uh, Garton, est-ce que vous pouvez... Monsieur, vous préfère to speak his native tongue? <laughs> oh, you, you speak English, eh? Yeah. Well, well, then perhaps you're the chap I'm looking for. Name of Henry, by any chance? This is right, sir. Henri Perrault, at your service. Oh, I've been told you're the chap who can help me. Uh, not without recommends, of course. You, you'll not find me stingy, you know. I, I'm here in Paris for a week. It's my first visit. Ah, yes. Uh, you wish to be shown the sights? Exactly. <laughs> now, now, Henry, I've been told that you know Paris backwards, and, uh, well, uh, that's how I want to see it. <laughs> but I think that's quite, uh... Oh, 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 too subtle for you, I think. Now, now, now what I mean to say, uh, none of these Eiffel Tower museum stuff for me. I want to see the places one hears about, the corners of the city hidden from the general run of the tourists. I think I understand, monsieur. You wish to see why they call Paris the city of pleasure, eh? <laughs> 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 Every kind of pleasure, eh, monsieur? Oh, uh, <laughs> the pleasure-seeking Mr. Cotton was well satisfied with his guide, who seemed to have an inexhaustible knowledge of the shadier parts of the capital. For his part, all he was delighted with his employer, whom he found to be a wealthy bachelor with no inhibitions about tipping. Imagine his further delight when, after a few days, the globe-cotting Englishman offered him a more permanent and rewarding form of employment, that of traveling companion and courier. All he accepted with alacrity, and within a few days, the couple arrived at their first port of call, Constantinople. Oh, she's quite up to date, Henry. I expected the place to be centuries out of date, but it is. No, indeed, Monsieur, very pleasant. 
I hope you found my services to your satisfaction, Monsieur, on the voyage. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I see no reason why the arrangement shouldn't work out perfectly. Now, uh, where, where are the McLeod? You are going out, Monsieur, or are you going? Well, no point in wasting time, Henry. And, and you're coming with me. I hope to nose out the spots of interest. <laughs> Very well, Monsieur. Uh, we are staying for some time here in Constantinople. Well, more than a night, anyway. I, I, I think I'd better carry all my money with me. You, you never know with these foreigners. Very wise, monsieur, very wise. One should not leave anything valuable in strange hotels. Very wise to keep it with you at all times. It was in Constantinople that the tour came to an abrupt end. Mr. William Cotton was never seen again in Constantinople or anywhere else. Henri Perrault disappeared at the same time, but a certain Count Henri de Tourville, who turned up in Scarborough, England, later that year, bore a resemblance, quite a remarkable resemblance, to the late Mr. Cotton's travelling companion. True, Henri the Count was impeccably dressed, he carried himself with an air, and he was wealthy, as Henri the waiter had never been, until Mr. Cotton disappeared. The high society of Scarborough, that most fashionable 19th century resort, was soon agog over the Count's lavish ways. My dear, I think you're excited. It's a delightful ball. Why, it's a typical season. So sweet of you to say so, Eileen. I must say, it's coming out to be most successful. Every trifling reason must be here tonight. And a season abroad as well. And by the way, have you got that charming concertator here? My dear, I've been for an introduction all evening. The things I've heard of him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they say he has a house in every country of Europe. All the important ones, anyway. I was so pleased to manage to come tonight. He's so sober. Oh, naturally. Half the mothers in Scarborough are praying for him to look in the direction of their daughter. Oh, look! He's coming this way. Oh, doesn't he look magnificent? Oh, you'd be a darling in to do. But of course. Carl! Carl! I must say, he's a fine figure of a man. Oh, divine. Such an air. Oh, and that beer. At your service, madame. Oh, Eileen, may I introduce uh, Monsieur Le Comte de Oh, how do you do? Great honor, your place. I've been anxious to meet you, Count. I'm hoping you'll be able to attend a little soirée I'm giving on Tuesday. Tuesday? Ah, your grace, I am so sorry. I have already accepted an invitation for that day. Oh, what a pity. Oh, but I know you're in great demand. Everyone has been most kind. And now, if you excuse me, I hear men play the worst, and I am engaged for this. Not that fascinating, Henrietta Brigham, Count. It is whether I am to dance, madame. Excuse me. Using every trick known to him, as a waiter, a man, and a Frenchman at that, Henri was now bent on the conquest of Miss Henrietta Brigham, a young lady who was due to inherit 30,000 pounds on the death of her widowed mother. And that was when pounds were pounds. Whether or not the Count was influenced by that fact, he certainly made a dashing wooer and a successful one. My darling little wife, you have made me... So happy. Oh, wasn't it a wonderful wedding, Henry? Wasn't it grand? Everyone was most kind. And now, honeymoon, Paris. About that, Henrietta, yes? this difficulty has arisen in a matter of uh, transferring my money. I was wondering, uh, do you think your mother might be willing to make me a loan? But I'm sure she'd be delighted to, my love. Good. I'll ask her right away. 
just a little trouble you understand over the transfer. The truth, of course, was that the Count, having used up all William Cotton's money in making a big splash at Scarborough, was now fat broke. Still, Mama Brigham was only too pleased to make her son-in-law alone. Once. But when Ori, having spent the whole sum on the honeymoon, returned with a request for more, he soon became aware of the trickiness of his position. His wife had no means of her own, and all requests had to be made to Mrs. Brigham, who not only feigned deafness on such occasions, but after a few months, horror of horrors, began hinting that repayment of the first loan would be welcome. Drastic action was obviously necessary, and in taking it, Ori the waiter was to show that no one is more ruthless than a man trying to maintain a standard of living to which he is not accustomed. Can you walk to me, dear? It is today I pay your mother a visit, my darling, and pay her back the money. <laughs> there are two things, eh? What money? Oh, that you learned it for the honeymoon? Yes. I had a letter yesterday asking me to learn. Yes, you? Why, that's unlike Mama. I must go now, Rieta. Give her my life, Henry. Tell her I'll be calling on her tomorrow, and I'll be bringing baby to see her. Uh, yes, uh, yes, my dear, I will tell her. But, Monsieur Le Comte, it is most extraordinary. Mrs. Brigham's health is excellent. That's very remarkable. But you understand, Doctor. Mrs. Brigham, she said to me in her letter, Great pistol, I have a fear of burglars. Well, I drank a gun with me. This gun that you see in her hand. She handled it, examined it, and suddenly it go up. When I kneel by her side, the Lord, she is dead. A terrible accident, Doctor. A terrible accident. My poor wife, she has just had a baby, you know. She will be so shocked to hear of this so terrible accident. Not only terrible, but curious, seeing that the bullet wound was in the back of Mrs. Brigham's head. But then we have a nobleman's word for it, and the doctor had the nobleman's check for it. So the certificate was signed without delay. But after the purely formal request, Scotland Yard, interested by several suspicious letters from relatives of Mrs. Brigham, sent one Inspector Gruskovich to make some inquiries. Well, these doubts have been raised. Can't I have been sent as it were to... Well, I can't say I like prying, sir, especially with a gentleman like you. Tell me, Inspector, Gruskovich is surely not an English name. Well, now you can't mention it, sir, it isn't. I've got Russian blood in me, as a matter of fact. Interesting. My mother, she was Russian. Departed, sir? Yes, Inspector, just like Mrs. Brigham. I'm very sorry to hear it, Count. Very sorry. Inspector Gruskovich, I am certain your commissioner of police does not pay you sufficient money in your job. I would like to help you if possible. Please keep your voice down, Count. Oh, so sorry. I think we can come to an arrangement, you and I. So I shall be saved having to answer questions about my mother-in-law. And you, Inspector, will be spared having to ask them. Now then, uh, where is my question? After a suitable interval, Inspector Daskovich reported to headquarters that there was no case. And the Commissioner please dropped the matter. Oh, by the way, Daskovich wasn't long in the force. But I still prefer you not to talk about it. Back in Scarborough, however, Arnie was still trying to get his mother-in-law's 30,000. His countess had inherited it all right, but was showing no desire to share it with him. Many a time, Arnie pressed her to put some of the money at least into his account, only to be given an occasional five-pound note for pocket money. Remembering Mr. William Cotton and Mrs. Brigham, we need not be surprised that Henrietta, Countess de Turville, soon became seriously ill and died, attended by the same doctor as had written the convenient necessary for her mother. But the Count, who was bearing his grief with commendable fortitude, was destined to receive a far greater shock than the death of his wife. My Thank you. You are my wife's lawyer. I had that privilege. I cannot tell you, Count, 
two such losses in such a short space of time, you have my duty. You have the will that my wife left? I have indeed. Still, uh, how goes the phrase? In the midst of life? Are yeah. the uh, papers for me to sign before the money comes to me? To your son, you mean, little child, sweet child. To my son? What is this? Your wife left the bulk of her fortune to your child, although you have a fairly large legacy. And of course, the money would come to you in the event of your son's death. I think I'll where you ought to. If I said the wrong thing, I say, Charles, these papers. Well, yes. The Parisian waiter was by no means content with the legacy. He meant to have the whole 30,000. Two lives that had stood in his way had been snuffed out. Would there soon be another death in the Tourville family? Well, when I get through high school, I might try to get a job that pays 50 or 60 a week so I can get some meals of my own. And then again, I might try to get into some college somewhere. Well, I might just sort of hang around and see what happens. Some people, when they approach the end of their high school days, just don't know what to do next. And with all the possibilities open to young people nowadays, it's easy to understand why. But here's some good advice. If you'll be finishing high school soon, don't spend the next few years just marking time. Put them to good use, preparing for the future. One excellent way to do this is by joining the United States Air Force, America's aerospace team. As an airman, you'll learn a vital aerospace skill as you start a career in one of the world's most future-oriented organizations. Ask any Air Force recruiter for the facts about the aerospace team. You can be part of it. Ori, Contecurville, refused to be downhearted. He bore without a murmur the deaths of his mother-in-law and his wife. And when he realized that these deaths had risen upon and not to himself, Ori never gave way to despair. If at first you don't succeed, try again. So Ori tried his hand at arson. <laughs> I say, don't do that. I say, so. I say, excuse me. It's Count Jordan, isn't it? I am the Count, yes. Well, I'm from the Daily Chronicle. This, um, was your house, uh, isn't it? Uh, wasn't it, Count? That is right. It's terribly tragic. Where were you seen very calm about it, Count? Is it in George? Heavily in George, yes. Ah. Well, what was there anyone inside? When he caught fire? Myself and my small son, Charles. Uh, unfortunately, there is no way out from him. What? Did you mean to eat crap in there? But he's a father, no? There is no need. He cannot get him out. He is locked in.
It boils sections of account. All that trouble over laying the fire completely wasted by an interfering policeman. The handsome ex-waiter was refoiled again. The insurance company, instead of politely handing over the money, started asking questions. Awkward questions. Devilish awkward. Count Orly de Turville found himself pumped for plausible answers. The company then had the gall to say that if he wanted to get any cash out of them, he'd better bring an action. Now, that was the last thing that Orly wanted. So he found a willing relative to adopt his son, and he left Scarborough, dropping his title as he went, and made his way to London. London, August 5th, 1871. The Home Officers granted the request of Mr. Henri de Tourville for British citizenship. Monsieur de Tourville wishes it to be known that he is anglicizing his name to Henry de Tourville. London Chit Chat, June 8, 1872. Among those answering the call to the bar in the middle of the day was that well-known figure in London society, Henry de Tourville. Mr. de Tourville explained to our representative that he had no intention of practicing. It is merely, he recorded, but I think it would to have barrister at law after my name. Incidentally, it is whispered that Mr. de Tourville is thinking of giving his name to another. We hope to be the first to announce the engagement. But the whispers were unfounded. While he could afford to remain a bachelor, only de Tourville merely flirted with the many women who found him so attractive. But by 1875, his bank account was looking rather seedy. And only realized it was time to stop trifling and get down to business. So a Mrs. Madeline Miller, a childless widow, age 45, income 7,000 pounds a year, was asked to her delight to become Mrs. de Tourville. Really, Madeleine, must we always have this Sarah, your maid, with us, even on our honeymoon? He's been with me so long, Henry. I feel so lost without her. But, my dear, a man, when he marries, wishes to be alone with his wife. I never feel, uh, as you say, at home when she is always at our side. Darling, here comes the proprietor. Ah, Madame de Tourville, and Mr. Alzo. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. You are enjoying ourselves here, sir? This beautiful country. Just right for the honeymoon, no? Yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> you have, of course. Visited Ferdinand Hurst? I have a long time ago. I'm taking my wife tomorrow. Oh, yes, yes, tomorrow. It will be a fine day for you. I do so want to see the first because I hear it's so exciting and of you. Oh, you shall be thrilled by the Ferdinand Hurst, madame. I'm looking forward to it enormously. <laughs> Honeymoon couples like it always. <laughs> it is very quiet up there on the cliffs. <laughs> People can be alone. Yes, uh, yes, I have been there once, I told you. <coughs> of, of course. Uh, now, if you would be so kind, excuse me, I make arrangements for the picnic luncheon for you to take with you in the carriage. And I'll stand by and tell her about tomorrow. Oh, Madeleine, I must tell you that the carriage tomorrow will only be big enough for you and me. Not Henry, Sorry, you can get a bigger one. Sarah would so like the excursion. But why, my darling, it will be so much nicer just you and me alone? You and I, no one else, Madeleine. You are all I want. Just you and me, Madeleine. Oh, dear love, when you say it like that, what can I answer but yes? Next morning, Ari and Madeleine set off to view the famous beauty spot. As they approached the past, the turtle stopped the carriage and informed the coachman that he and his wife would finish the journey on foot. Nothing strange about that is a lovely day, and after giving them instructions, the coachman left and drove back alone. The morning passed and the afternoon. And as the evening changed to night, 
the proprietor of the hotel and his wife became more and more anxious. Lord knows that we are supper at eight. Now it is already after another after nine. They should have been here long ago. A first party should be sent to look for them. Mm, we give them another five minutes. And then ah. Ah, you must come quickly. My wife, my Madeleine, terrible accident. She was walking to here. I, I told her not to go to here, but she would not miss me. And then, oh, it is too terrible. We must go quickly. I know exactly where it was that she fell. Alors, I tell you, I am certain it was here. Oh, well, do not be anxious, sir. Oh, she is down there. The men will find her. Da. Here they come now. Excuse me. Uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. De Tourville. The men have found the body of your wife. Dead? Yes. Dead. Ah! I want you to fetch up the corpse and bring it back to the hotel. Yes. No, of course. What? That cannot be. Who is this man? This is Sergeant Magnus Fritz, sir, of the local police. The body must stay where she is. But why is that? Why must it stay here? Nonsense! One of my men will watch it and stay there until the affair has been investigated. They are the two of you. The corpse of your wife certainly not meet our assistance till this place came when we found it. And there are other signs. I must report this affair to my superiors. On inquiry, there must be. <laughs> of this course of inquiry is that the deceased lady died through an accident and no responsibility whatever for it attached to this worthy gentleman, a visitor to our country from England, who has this caught deep sympathy in his sad bereavement. I am struck that he leaves this course a free man, that his passport may return to him without delay. So for the third time, Ori went to collect the dividends from death. Back in London, the executor of Madeline's will, having heard his sad tale, paid without hesitation to Turville the sum of nearly 40,000 pounds, Henri's biggest jackpot yet. This most successful trickster settled down once more to his life of ease. But one evening, several months after his return to England, he was interrupted as he was dressing for dinner. And it is really most inconvenient for me to receive a visitor at this time, my dear sir. I am sorry to be inhospitable, but, sir... Uh, I'm afraid you'll have to receive me, Mr. de Tourville. I'm Inspector Clark, and I've come from Scotland Yard. I want you to come with me now to Bow Street. Bow Street? Scotland Yard, Inspector? What is this? Some matter of police? I am sorry, I'm just going out to dinner. You never have to wait, sir. Some few days, perhaps. I hold a warrant for your arrest. The charge is that uh, you murdered your wife in the Austrian Tyrol on the 16th of July, 1876. This is a pessimistic nonsense. In any case, I was abandoned. Abandoned, sir? Uh, liberty. Eh? Uh, delivered. Surrender, as you say. Uh, except free. Free from all responsibility. That was in Austria, Mr. de Tourville. It's the Bow Street Magistrate wants to see you now. You'll be charged formally, and counsel will be appointed for your defense. How do you do, Mr. de Tourville? My name is Williams, Montague Williams, QC, at your service. I'm to defend you. But I have already been defended. In Austria, I am free. Oh, don't you know, then? The case is reopened. 
Some of your late wife's... Uh, uh, my condolences, by the way, sir. Your wife's relative sent a detective over to Austria recently. This detective looked into the facts of your wife's death and seems to think that she may have been pushed. So the Austrian government wants you back to try you again. But I am an Englishman. Oh, yes, sir. And that is the reason why they are to try you to see whether there is any prima facie case against you, enough to justify extradition. And if I am sent to Austria and they try me again and they find me guilty, how will the Austrians punish me? They'll hang you, sir. They'll hang you. Montague Williams, QZ, perhaps because he wasn't a woman, was not completely covered by Arnie. In fact, during the London trial, he wrote a description of his client in a letter to a friend. The accused hair, moustache, and other hirsute appendages are of a glossy blackness that is suggestive of a meretricious application. His manner in court is jaunty, and he waved his winged hand to his friends in a fashion which I considered unbecoming. His shirt front literally with gems. I feel instinctively that there is something of a cad about him. In spite of this, I naturally shall defend him to the best of my ability, but the evidence is false. KOGO San Diego. The prisoner of Lippin, his clothes, baton, his face, and arms were bruised. But he said he had immediately come to the hotel after the accident. This woman was lying on the ground at the top of the precipice, not near the body. She had not been stopped by the rocks while falling, there is three. In the dirt near the corpse, marks were found showing that it had along the ground been dragged after falling. Of all these circumstances, I find there is a prima facie case against the prisoner. In accordance, therefore, with the Treaty of Extradition with Austria, he must hereupon be surrendered to the Austrian authority. Scotland Yard sent Inspector Clark to Henri's last trial in Vienna. He took with him the solid Mrs. Brigham and the evidence gathered by the insurance company concerning the fire in Sabra. Hundreds of depossessions were read. Dozens of witnesses heard. Henri himself made a speech at the end of which the judge told him he talked too much. Finally, Henri Perrault, alias Henri de Tourville, was sentenced to death. But Lady Luck gave him a last gift, and the sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. Plenty of time for Henri to reflect that although serving drinks in a Paris cafe has some drawbacks, serving sentences at the Vienna prison has no advantages. And by the way, do keep quiet about Inspector Druskovich. That's one of the secrets Scotland Yard really likes to keep. Well, that's all for now, but I'll be back again soon to tell you some more of the secrets of Scotland Yard. Meanwhile, this is Sidebrook saying goodbye and pleasant dreams. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.